Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to another episode of Byline, which is the United Ireland podcast companion series where we talk to brilliant journalists about the stories that matter. This week, we're speaking with Eve Grace Moore about her career and, of course, Golfgate, the story that shook the Irish nation, its government and the EU commission and led to the resignation and disciplining of multiple political figures, including the EU Commissioner for Trade, Phil Hogan, and the second Minister uh, for Agriculture of this administration so far, Dark Leary. Aoife is a journalist with the Irish Examiner, working the political beat for the most part, uh, who got the scoop of the year, really, instigating conversations about accountability in public life and bruising a government that has a habit of denting itself in its first couple of months. Hello, Aoife. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, really great for you to take the time out. I know that it's been a very uh, intense and frantic uh, period of your professional life. So uh, definitely appreciate your time here. Yeah, no worries. So let's go right back to the start and a little bit about you. Uh, where did you grow up and when did you decide on journalism as a career and why? Yeah, so I am obviously from the accent from Derry City. Um born and reared. I know well in my family um, as a journalist or anything or inherently political but I do come from like a campaigning family so my mum's brother was shot and killed on Bloody Sunday and my family along with a few others were the founding families of the Bloody Sunday Justice Campaign. So that's always been a huge part of my life. Um, We were always you know at marches and protests and stuff like that and there was just always journalists around um and we were always kind of told how important the media was um you know because without the media I don't think the police on the justice campaign would have gotten anywhere um without the pressure that they eventually put on the British state but um yeah so I think that had a lot to do with it um just come from a very kind of newsy kind of house my dad's obsessed with politics and stuff as well although he's never um stood or anything like that but just really in the news and I think I was just naturally good at English at school and I didn't want to be a solicitor which everyone kept telling me to do I don't know why that people always say oh you're good at English just you do law so um yeah I just um I thought about it for a good way and I just thought journalism would be a good fit and apparently it has been (laughs) And where did you start out then? Like, what were your first, uh, what was your first entry into the into the industry? Oh my God, I've had so many unglamorous and weird jobs. So <laughs> when I first started um, just out of university, I'd obviously done like, you know, the work experience at the Dairy Journal and the Dairy News and a couple of different places in Glasgow where I had gone to university. And um, when I left university I got my first like professional journalism job was at a press agency um in the west coast of Scotland in a wee town called Coatbridge it um only had four staff including me 
and it basically wrote stories and sold them to all the biggest newspapers, mostly the Sun and um, the Daily Record. And it was honestly like the best grounding I think you could ever get in journalism because it was all the jobs that like mainstream journalists didn't want to do. So it was just easier to get a press agency to do them. So that includes door knocking the families of murder victims, you know, standing at crime scenes for hours on end, that kind of stuff. So um, I worked there for a while and then eventually moved on to a regional paper in the west coast of Scotland, um, the Clydebank Post and the Department Reporter, and stayed there for a good while. And that's where I kind of honed my court reporting skills. Um, although the times are quite small, they have quite a serious kind of heroin problem they're quite deprived areas so that was really good and I was also there for the Scottish independence referendum which was you know I think probably the biggest political event I've ever been a part of or experienced. What was it like covering that? It became really um, fraught I mean everyone had an opinion on it like and I mean from people in your office to you know your friends and like you're going I was we were at a house party me and my boyfriend um, the week before and there was two lads nearly scrapping over it. So towards the end, it became so, so fraught and the count, we, that was at the count in Clydebank and, you know, Clydebank is a really, really deprived area and when the results started coming in, it was clear that all the most deprived areas were the areas that had voted yes and the kind of more well-off and richer areas had voted no. And people just got so divided over it. And the politics after the independence referendum became incredibly boring because every argument was ended or started with, well, if we were independent, this wouldn't happen. Or this is your fault because you we had the independence referendum. So I was kind of looking for an out. And then we got offered the opportunity to move to Australia with uh, my boyfriend's job and he wasn't that bothered but I was like nearly biting their hand off <laughs> so we went over and I very glamorously got a job as a reporter for a truck magazine truck magazine yeah so I wrote about lorries and trucks and turning circles and payloads and interviewed many many truck owners <laughs> It was so hard to get into journalism in Melbourne and I didn't know anyone. I didn't know the politics of Australia. I didn't really know the culture at all. Like it was basically just started applying for anything and everything and got yeah, got a job as the chief reporter for a magazine about lorries and trucks. <laughs> what was the magazine called? Truck Force. <laughs> Excellent name. I know it's one of those things that I tell people, or even now, you know, if I see a lorry on the road, or like, and I know like different brands, I'm like, oh, that's an Azuzu. That's great for silly turning. <laughs> <laughs> you never know where things, these things might uh, come in use. But yeah, how long were you in? How long were you in Melbourne for then? Two years, just two years. Yeah, I think everyone around my age in Ireland has been to either uh, Canada or. Australia for a couple of years I think it's like a rite of passage now and then what year did you come back to Ireland or was did you yes. come back so I came back and I was very much um of the opinion that because I had moved to Australia for his job he was moving to Ireland for me 
So I had already kind of said, listen, I'm going back to Ireland. And I'd been in Glasgow for six or seven years and been in Melbourne for two. And I was just ready to come home. So I got a job at the Irish Daily Star in Dublin freelancing. Um, but they were able to give me about five or six shifts a week. So it was basically like a full-time job. But um, in, uh, this is the most dairy way of, you know, manoeuvring your life. But I obviously had nowhere to live and didn't have, you know, a steady income. You know, you could show a landlord or whatever. So I ended up sleeping on this girl's sofa for six months while I worked at the star. And I had never met her before in my life. But my mum and her auntie are best friends. So I just, she was just a random dairy person in Dublin. And I was, and my mom was like, you can go and live on her sofa. So that's what it does. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it's dedication um, to the craft. You know, that's, what it is. that's what it is. What kind of stories did you find yourself gravitating towards yeah, in the star? It was in the star that like, they were really, um, they were really open to like, you know, just whatever you're interested in, as long as it's a good story, they kind of give me free reign. When I got there, my very first day was a double shooting. Um, the Hutch Kinahan gang war was getting really bad that summer. And that was my first job. I don't think my arse had hit the seat. And they were like, you need to go out to Ballymun. And I was a bit apprehensive. But um, then towards... Obviously, they have my hotel there, so they don't need more crime correspondence. But when I was there, I found myself gravitating towards like social justice. I think it's just kind of the city I come from, like the way my family have raised me. I was kind of always like stories about homelessness and sex workers and, you know, drug policy. It was that kind of stuff that always really interested me. And then I've always had a natural um interest in politics it's something I've always been really interested in and I think I have a pretty decent analysis of so um there's not a lot of scope for that in the star to be fair but um yeah it was mostly social justice and homelessness and then I think that's actually kind of informed the way I think about things now because although I'm a political correspondent I often think about mostly how these the politics of things affects people on the ground and I think that's why there's been a bit of a disconnect between political journalism and the Irish public for a while because I kind of fear at times that we're, political journalists are writing for each other rather than writing for the public because, you know, the people want to know how this is going to affect them in their day-to-day life, not how it looks to political journalists. Mm, yeah, good point. So did you go from the examiner then from the star or was there anything in between? Oh no, there's loads of stuff in between. So <laughs> the six months on the leather sofa in the height of summer was getting um, pretty old pretty fast. And because I couldn't get a full-time contract and I couldn't get a flat, Peter, my fellow, was like, why don't we just go, why don't we, you just try and come back to Glasgow for a while? And I applied for one job and got it in the Daily Record, which is the biggest um newspaper in Scotland and it had always been like one of my ambitions as when I was at uni in Glasgow that I was going to eventually work at the record so I couldn't turn it down and went and I think I was only there six months we had just bought a sofa when David Young from Press Association contacted me and said we're looking for a reporter in Dublin would you be interested 
And I said, yep, no bother. And then I was with Press Association for just under two years before I went to the examiner. Right. And um, what was your kind of impression when you started working at the examiner? Like, what were you, was that, did you go for that role initially or did you, were you working as a reporter? So I was a, just a straight news reporter at Press Association, but I often found myself that I was doing the bulk of the politics stuff Mm. and I didn't mind it. And then uh, Fiacrad left the examiner and I was contacted by Dan, the political editor, and he said, listen, I'd really like you to apply for this job. I think you'd be really good. Um, said he was impressed with my work and all the other stuff that they say. And I applied for, yeah, applied for the examiner job and got it. But I find it so like difficult at the start because I think I was only in the examiner two weeks when we went. I got the chance to go to the Taoiseach's trip in New York and Washington and we were there for five days and by the time we got back lockdown had happened so I really only had two weeks in the doll as a political correspondent when the country went into lockdown and I basically had to like find a way of doing my job from my house and I'd only been in the job two weeks I didn't have you know the kind of relationships that people have built up with politicians and advisors and aides for years and the program for government negotiations were ongoing. And yeah, I just really had to go out of my way to like get myself known and meet people. But it's, it is so hard when obviously the country was in lockdown, but you just, you get over it, you just get creative or whatever. And I find that because I don't look or sound like a lot of the TDs in government, then maybe I should look for younger TDs and, you know, use it like that to my advantage that maybe because I'm different from the other Paul Cores, then maybe, you know, I can use that to my advantage in some way and like form a relationship with newer TDs and younger TDs. And that was the kind of way I went about it. So how did you like do that job from, from your home? I mean, apart from trying to kind of build those new connections or new relationships, it involves being incredibly annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Just phoning and phoning and phoning. And the thing is, like, this is why lockdown was so hard for political journalists, because if you bump into someone on the doll, they have to speak to you. But in lockdown, they don't have to answer their phone if they don't want to. Mm. And they had made a pact at first, you know, well, they always say they do anyway, but, you know, we're not going to leak. These are going to be confidential discussions. But, like, I don't know if anyone ever believes that. But it just got to a point where, yeah, you just have to keep phoning, keep texting. And it, I started um, texting people things that I'd heard. So if I couldn't get direct answers, out, like long answers out of them, I would just say, I heard this. Is this true? And done it that way. So then, you know, they don't feel like they're leaking as much or something. So, yeah, I, I did, started doing that. But it's worked out. I mean, really well, and people have been incredibly welcoming and stuff, um, TDs and other journalists. So, yeah, it's, it's been really good. Um, from a personal experience of, of the pandemic, you had a, a very significant uh, milestone um, postponed. Yep. So I was supposed to get married on the 18th of July, and I am still a free woman. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that must have been an absolute nightmare, I guess it goes without saying. 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, <laughs> I don't know what to say about me. I cried when my hen got cancelled, but I didn't cry when my wedding got cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, to, oh no, it was it was a nightmare, and it was you know we could see the date off in the distance. It got to like April, then it got to May, and I had said to Peter like we need to say you know I think we need to start talking about moving the date. And like, God bless him, he was trying to be like so optimistic, being like, no, it should be fine. And because obviously I'm going to the NEFID briefings for work and like I'm listening to the CMO and listening to the Taoiseach and I was so, so pessimistic. I was just like, nah, we're, we're not able to get married this year. So we've moved it to May next year. Um which is the only date basically our reception could even give give us because he had already, you know, moved so many people's weddings. So yeah, I have a very expensive wedding dress currently hanging up in my wardrobe that I'm not going to wear for another eight months. Well, hopefully uh, next May comes through. Well, let's go to then, you're a couple of weeks in the job. Um, lockdown happens, as you say, political journalism becomes a very different thing. And in fact, a lot of political journalists, um, you know, are now covering the pandemic effectively and, and, and how it's filtered through the political lens, I guess. Um, and then you obviously hear something about, uh, there's, you know, obviously we know the discourse that was happening in Irish society from loads of different kinds, like people giving out about curtain twitchers and mm -hmm. then everybody, you know, doing their best and, and the toll uh, that that took on everyone. We all we've all been in it so we all know um and then something like w what was going on in Clifton comes down some wire to yourself um how does a story like that start when you encounter that information yeah so it was myself and Paul Hasford that wrote the story we had received a tip off um we'd actually received um, images or video of the table plan for the event that was all that we got and there wasn't much um, to go on so the first thing I did well I emailed a text Paul and said what do you think and he was like yeah we'll check it out so the first thing I did was I called the hotel and I didn't want to <laughs> spook them so I kept it like really easy breezy when I spoke to the receptionist and I was like, hi, I just wanted to check if this event went ahead last night. And she said, yeah, yeah, it went ahead. I wasn't working, but I couldn't give you, so I couldn't give you numbers, but it definitely went ahead. And once the hotel confirmed it, me and Paul just took to the phones and just called every name on the guest list. And then I phoned, and then obviously I requested to speak to the manager of the hotel and it just went from there. We got the tip off at around 11 o'clock in the morning. The story went live at about 7 o'clock in the evening and we couldn't save it for print because that Wiley Fox, Gav Riley, also had it. <laughs> but um, And it was so it was actually Dara Kaleri's aide that had told me, you know, someone else has contacted us about this. And uh, um, So me and Paul were like, the, the story was getting sent round from Paul to me to the editor from Paul to me, you know, to make edits. And we were getting really pedantic about stuff. And I was actually at the gym and like on the treadmill, like sh shouting down the phone, like, put it off, put it off. We're, like, we're going to get scooped. But um, yeah, so eventually we got it out first, which was 
uh, ideal, but I don't think Paul or me had any idea when we started doing the story how big it was going to be. The only person who really foresaw it was our news editor, John O'Mahony. He was rightly, you know, furious, like the kind of the mood that we got from Lifeline the next day, John already had that when we were doing the story. Like he just couldn't believe that this had happened. And because I think with me and Paul, the people that we had spoken to, and I've told this anecdote quite a lot in the time since, but the people that we have spoke that we spoke to who were there all seemed like so remarkably calm. Sometimes when you phone a politician and they've done something, you can tell in the tone of the voice that they've been spooked. But no one seemed relatively like intimidated or you know worried everyone was spent a lot of time trying to convince Paul and I that this was all above board and it was allowed I think I spent half close to half an hour with the manager of a hotel discussing the difference between partitions and walls um so yeah there was obviously moments of the ridiculousness in it as well but um it, it's just snowballed from there and um yeah, I think neither of us had any idea, but I think a lot of the reason we didn't have any idea is because all the people who were there apparently thought this was all above board. Yeah, did that make you second guess yourself? I mean, if you're speaking to people, if you think that this is quite a deal, but you're talking to people and they're kind of grand about it, were you second guessing yourself at all that maybe this was a smaller story than what it would become? Yeah, totally. I actually got off the phone with the hotel manager and phoned Paul and was like, maybe this isn't that big a deal. And he immediately responded and was like, Aoife, this is a really big deal. And I was like, but no one seems worried about this. And he said that he had gotten that from a few people that he spoke to um, about it. The only person by the time I got to Dr. Michael Hartley, the former Claire TD, he was there and when I phoned him, he sounded genuinely worried and a bit concerned. And it, when we took the story to John, our news editor, then he couldn't believe it. Like he couldn't believe that this had happened. And it kind of reinforced me and Paul, like we're on the right track here. We have to keep going. When um, people talk about, you know, you know, journalism is such a collaborative, like reporting is such a collaborative sport, even though it may be one or two um reporters themselves you know getting the story and writing it up or whatever what was the and obviously your work everybody's working remotely right now so what was the kind of um depth of the collaboration in the examiner was it mostly yourself Paul and the news editor yeah so it was me and uh, Paul and I basically writing the story and then basically phoning the news editor every time we spoke to someone new to just keep him um as involved as possible because obviously the lockdown and the pandemic, we spend an inordinate amount of time on the phone to each other anyway. We have two news conferences during the day. Um, with the first news conference at 12, I had already spoke to John and said, I think, you know, I think this is a story. And then just keeping him in the loop all day. And then obviously the editor-in-chief, um, Tom Fitzpatrick, towards the end, he gets final say on that. But... um. I have to say they were both like incredibly um, supportive. And I'm sure Dan McConnell would have been, but he was on holidays with his children. So he, he must all, <laughs> he must all this, which I'm sure he's pretty annoyed about. <laughs> um, the focus at that stage, when you publish the story um, on the Thursday, August 20th online, 
uh, was mostly on Dara Kaliri. And, the, mm-hmm. um, and if I've got this right, I think the Indo then had a story about Phil Hogan was added as well. So yeah, go on. And so, uh, but you knew kind of all of the guests who were there because you'd seen the, the, the table plan. Was, were you kind of, I mean, it was obviously a lot of reporters were in a different kind of holding pattern of trying to confirm um, who was there and who else they could talk about who was there. Yeah, this was it. Um, with the people, you know, that we named and stuff, there was a lot of, you have to actually confirm that they were there and Phil Hogan's people were, um, Paul was dealing with them and were incredibly um, evasive at first and we couldn't get a straight answer. And I believe it was Hugh O'Connell then did get a straight answer. He had it, He got it confirmed the next day that the commissioner was there. What were those um, hours after you published the story like? I just could like the the immediate reaction was just so like from the very start that just I know retweets and stuff aren't like a measure of anything but it was just it just snowballed so quickly the comments and everyone just could there was just, like such a sense of like shock and disbelief. I mean, the examiner gets emails every day from readers, like you work at a paper yourself. So we get all manner of weird and wonderful <laughs> emails into our inbox every day. But I can only describe it as a flurry. Like in the hours after, we had emails from doctors, nurses, teachers, people who were in lockdown in Kildare, elderly people, people who'd, be invi- who'd been invited to the event and didn't go. Um, there was just hundreds and hundreds of them. And the prime time and then I knew it must have been big because prime time phoned me at like nine o'clock and said can you come on prime time in the next 20 minutes and I just laughed because I was sitting in my pajamas and co-op and there's just even if I flew I don't think I would have got there in time but um yeah the hours after it like I didn't sleep very much that I'm not a great sleeper anyway but I didn't sleep very much that night because I just couldn't stop looking at my phone and like my fella was going mental, but like I just couldn't, it just wouldn't stop. And then because I was so buzzed or whatever, with the adrenaline of it, I just didn't sleep at all that night. So I spent the next day, I was supposed to be off on annual leave to collect my wedding dress. And I had done six radio shows before I left the house. I filed copy while wearing my wedding dress at a fountain. Then Joe did two more while I was like pulled over at the side of the motorway. Then came back, went to the hairdressers and filed copy while I was at the hairdressers so yeah it wasn't really annual leave it was like a work day but I was allowed to pick up my my wedding dress and go to the hairdressers (laughs) in terms of then what was being reported by you guys and then of course others as different aspects of this story emerged and what was being described as happening in the media versus how the public was picking it up how would you describe those two different things? Like, was there a, the, the obviously the the public reaction and anger uh, versus what the people there and what was being reported on seemed to think was happening? Like you talked about the calmness of of people; they just thought they were at a dinner that was fine. The public mm-hmm. thought something else. Yeah, they. I think they believed that they were above board because ugh, this is us in this partition thing again. Who would have thought partition in Ireland is such a such a contentious issue? Um, they thought because there was a partition, this like sliding wall thing, 
that because they were in two different rooms, in two sections of one room, it was allowed. Uh, I went over and back with the manager of the hotel who, he was going off the advice he had got from the Irish Hotels Federation and he was convinced they had, were above board and you know, then I was like going through emails from the Irish Hotels Federation and all these like minor, minor things that obviously add up to a good story, but uh, everything it has to be checked out. But yeah, I mean, the people who were there, um, I can't speak for all of them, but the ones, some of them we spoke to were um, quite arrogant um, and were convinced that they had um, done everything above board. And then there were others who said, you know, I thought when I was there, I'm not sure about this, but also they didn't go home <laughs> and leave. So, yeah, and like the thing is too, the stage we're at, the government's message that that entire week had been so garbled. I mean, this government by anybody's stretch has not been great at communication. And the message the entire week had been so garbled that I think people were genuinely confused about the, the regulations. But the other side of that is even a small child would know when they walk into a room with 80 people in it today, they would know they're not allowed to do that. The story took on such a life of its own and it almost can be kind of broken down into multiple different parts. But I suppose two of the big ones were um, the fallout from the 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 dinner and uh, in the hotel in Clifton itself, the event um, and everybody kind of involved in that. And then Phil Hogan's, um, you know, adventures around Ireland. Uh, so let, let's kind of separate those those two. And we'll talk about Phil Hogan in a, in in a second. Um, but how would how did you see uh, the story developing as as the drip feed kind of continued of of, of various people and the various excuses and also the public reaction? Like because it really did just it, it, the momentum. Um, just kept going from I mean I mean, you could go into loads of reasons why that could be like people are just online all the time or people were particularly aggrieved by this thing or it just had the sum of its parts was so offensive to people how did you see it unfold over the following days leaving Phil Hogan aside I guess for the moment yeah so the story went up at seven o'clock online and by ten the paper goes to bed around half ten and by half ten the story had changed um, we had a, a further statement from Dara Cleary apologising. We'd obviously had a statement from him in the first story and then when the story got picked up and immediately went viral, he sent out another statement, another apology. I was quite sure when I went to bed on Thursday night that Dara Cleary would resign only because I'm never very really good at like political guesses, um, but um, Dara Cleary is... Uh, a really, really decent person. Um, he is really upfront and honest, and I can safely say, you know, of all the people who were there, um, the person who was most upfront about getting back to me and was frank and honest and didn't try and deceive us at all was Dara Cleary. So I just kind of knew with the person he was that he wouldn't want to embarrass Fina Fall and Michal Martin. He's a Fianna Fáil man, you know, days tomorrow, and I think I knew straight away that he wouldn't, he wouldn't stick around, that he would resign. Um, the rest of it, I couldn't really. I mean, 
I don't think I even really, because I, I try to write off a lot of it as, you know, Twitter is uh, a vacuum. You know what I mean? It's There's a lot of outrage on Twitter a lot. So I try to write off a lot of it in my head. And when I was driving to the hairdressers, I was listening to Liveline. And I don't, I'm not an active listener of Liveline um, generally. But I do think I must have kn- known on the Friday that I needed to listen to it. And the stories on Liveline, I think, like I had a lump in my throat three or four times. And it was so clear that the public were going to drive the story. I mean, some newspapers have covered it, you know, with a lot more outrage than others. But the pub, I, it's one story that I can safely say the public has driven this because the appetite from, from the public to find out what happened and why this happened and who was there. And I think, as you say, like it's some of its parts, you know, people are at home, they're online a lot. But also, and I think this is why the story is so unique, is that people for a long time have been cynical about politics and they believe that, you know, the rules are just for us and they don't think the rules apply to them and they have their sacred gulf societies. And I don't think that the fact that it was a gulf out in helped matters. Um, For a lot of the Irish public, you know, gulf doesn't come under their (laughs) day-to-day life. And I think it just fed under this narrative and I'm not saying that this is true because I don't think it is but that they don't really care they're just they can do their own thing and we just have to go along with their rules and I think that is what's driven the outrage is that it's one rule for us and one rule for them. And then the Phil Hogan part of course almost became um, I mean it was kind of ridiculous you know the amount of times that you know, I kept hearing from my mom. You couldn't make it up. You just couldn't make it up. I mean, as, every like as like someone. Look, I'm relatively new to the job. I don't know Phil Hogan that well, but he's been in politics an incredibly long time. And I remember, like everyone knows, whether you're into politics or not, that the drip drip is so much worse than a full front, like full frontal statement of like this is what happened, because Irish journalism and Ireland itself is so small that it was obvious that more was going to come out. You know what I mean? Like the, the drip feed of information and then he was in this county and then he was in that county and then he was seen in a restaurant. And I just couldn't believe that a man who'd spent so much of his life in politics couldn't get in front of the narrative. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing because um, there's like a parallel narrative amongst some certain people that, you know, when when his his position was really looked under threat, um, which I kind of felt it was from the get go. But anyway, when it really seemed that he would uh, um, have to pay the price, uh, you know, this kind of narrative of like, you know, he's our guy in in the EU, and you know, this guy's really great at negotiating. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, well, this dude can't negotiate his way out of an interview with Tony Connolly. So you know, it, I, it's so interesting. What 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 is behind that? What feels like either naivety or really breathtaking arrogance. I know, shout out to Tony Connolly, another great dairy person involved in Gulfgate. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, you know, it is, it's a strange time. We are in mid-Brexit negotiations and I think Europe and the European Parliament and, you know, trade commissioners, they seem so distant to people. I mean, for the masses of the Irish public, I don't think they know what an EU trade commissioner does. And then also 
it was easy to predict, you know, things like Dara Kaliri, but also the Irish public, you know, don't know Europe that well either and like how Europe works. So I think for a lot of it, everyone was just, you know, this is what I think should happen. And I actually found we received so many emails um, to the Irish examiner <laughs> saying, you know, I hope you're happy now. You've got your man. You know, we're going to suffer, you know, in Brexit or all this. But I just, yeah, that's what I just thought at the time. It was like, Phil Hogan should be better at this. I mean, if he thought that he had, you know, if he genuinely thought that he hadn't broke the rules, surely the, the statement should have been forthcoming from the get-go. And it kind of reflected to either, it kind of reflected either a sense of arrogance that he didn't have to explain himself or a genuine naivety for a man who has spent a great portion of his life at the front line of Irish and European politics. So yeah, I was taken aback. I mean, everyone knows, like politicians know how to use the press. And I couldn't believe that knowing he knew he'd been pulled over by the guards and caught on his phone. And even that, he didn't come forward with that at first either. It was just, yeah, I mean, maybe it was one of those things where you're like, I'll just hope nothing else comes out and I'll just tell them as little as possible. But when has that ever worked in Irish politics? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course, one, one of the other aspects of it that is also ongoing um, is Seamus Wolf. Um, and I suppose that part of the story has um, dampened down a bit because we have this, I guess, investigation that Susan Denham is doing or overseeing. Um, how do you think that will end up? I mean, I'm not asking you to make any any predictions or, or call any shots or anything like that, but uh, it does not seem to bode well from that either. I think there's a a seriousness to the, uh, you know, this quote unquote separation of powers that Mm -hmm. the people keep talking about as Claire Byrne very astutely said, you know, that didn't exist in Clifton. So why do you keep kind of talking about it when Micheál Martin was was kind of parroting it? What do you think about the seriousness of that aspect of it? Yeah, I think this goes to what, you know, I said earlier about, you know, people believe that, you know, they're all in it together, even though they're different parties or, you know, there was banking lobbyists. I mean, it just it just looks so bad to the public, like banking lobbyists who are former TDs, along with the minister, along with the commissioner, along with a Supreme Court judge. I mean, it just it, if you were looking for, you know, an easy way to explain cronyism. People can just point to that now and say, look, this is what we always knew about Irish politics. They're all on it together. And I think, and I tried to make this point in my column the next day, but that is what I think is going to be so damaging um, for Irish politics. Like there's a, like a lack, a real lack of women and young people in Irish politics. And it's not an accident. It's because people are cynical. People think like, oh, they're all in it for themselves. You know, they don't really believe in anything. They're just in it because, you know, they have a big pension and a good job and jobs for the boys. And that kind of notion is what permeates Irish society and like turns young people away from politics and women away from politics. And like, it also wasn't an accident that there was only one woman who was on the guest list for that event that wasn't a partner of someone else who had been invited, you know, as because she was a member. So yeah, I think 
that is something that we're really going to have to worry about. And I think the government is going to really have to work to one back the trust of people. And for Seamus Wolf, I mean, I can't say the, you know, how how bad it is because I'm not well versed enough in, you know, the justice system and how, you know, they're supposed to conduct themselves or whatever. I don't know. Are you allowed to be friends with TDs if you're a justice? But I think with Seamus Wolf as well is the fact that he is the former attorney general and he had responsibilities for actually writing the guidelines, not the particular ones he had broken at Clifton. But, you know, we were all in the lockdown together, the full lockdown, when you were only allowed to go two kilometres to your house, which even now when I say out loud, sounds like you could laugh about it now, it's so mental. But, you know, Seamus Wolf was heavily involved in writing those guidelines and then he didn't even notice apparently, when he was in Clifton that he was breaking the rules. So, yeah, I just think it's been a really, really sorry episode in Irish politics and I don't believe in scalps, despite what trolls on Twitter keep telling me. Um, No one went under this, like, looking for heads or being for blood. But I think the the mood of the Irish public has definitely shown the government that something has to change. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it is a sorry state of affairs, I suppose, for Irish politics. But for society, I guess you could frame it in that, you know, um, a genuine public outrage that wasn't manufactured or riled up, that was actually authentic and demands for accountability in some ways won. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a thing like it was immediate, you know, and like I've noticed this even from people who have like tweeted me or emailed me. It's not just the minister or the commissioner. People want to know every single person who was there. Like it's not just, you know, the public officials. It's the former senators, which there were a lot of former TDs, you know, the people that were there. People really wanted to know everything about everyone who was there. And um yeah, I just feel like it. Um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> oh, just in terms that it was for society, it could be potentially framed as a positive moment, um, considering yeah. the accountability aspect. Yeah, because the thing was too, it's, I don't even think it can be compared to the Barry Cohen episode because I think when Barry Cohen resigned, it was because the t- the Taoiseach um kind of felt you know you need to answer some questions like there's accountability here as well so barry just resigned and that was it but the public outrage wasn't as much there was a lot of people that i found had a certain level of sympathy for barry coin but with this story it's just not been the same at all i mean it's just been an absolute outcry of people are just so fed up. And I think there has been a certain level of a lack of accountability um, in Irish politics for a long time. And we've had so many scandals, even the last few years, you know, with Cervical Check and Morris McCabe and these terrible things that have happened. And it's the Irish public that pays the price or Irish people that pays the price. So I think people were really hungry for something to spark the change. And I think this is what Gulfgate has given them. More generally then, when you're working on um, stuff like this, you obviously have to juggle an awful lot of contacts, different, you know, managing different relationships with officials, with advisors, with with politicians. Um, and at the same time, often reporting is just, well, not just, but it, it involves, um, you know, just 
successively like pissing people off week in, week out um, because you are holding, uh, you know, power to account and all that. It must be a difficult thing to manage, um, especially that I know you say you don't believe in scalps, but these are ones that that yourself and, and Paul, you know, whether you want to own them or not, got. Mm-hmm. Um, ha, you know, is that a difficult uh, balance, you know, to kind of maintain access in uh, within those fears while also uh, doing doing the work that that sometimes and certainly in this occasion kind of ended people or at least part of people's careers? Yeah, like I think, you know, not to be like too much of the Dark Cleary fan club, but um, when it happened and, you know, me and Paul were texting and I was like, I really wish it was anyone but Dara because we both had a lot of time for him. He's, you know, a really decent fella and he's really good to journalists. He really respects the media and it was, and like you'll hear from other TDs from other parties, like everyone has a lot of time for him. And I remember thinking like, Oh, I just wish it was, it was anyone but Dara, but that's the job. And like, it's not easy being in there after you do stories like that and, or any kind of story that's negative. I mean, you have to write a story which and I have done obviously a lot of times that really 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 embarrasses a person or worse and then you see them in the canteen at work and they won't speak to you and you're nearly like I'm not embarrassed but it is strange and awkward and like there are politicians in there who absolutely hate me um but that's true of any journalist and there who's doing their job correctly I mean We've all seen, you know, the bile that's directed um, at political journalists across every paper, um, and memes and stuff like that. Like, so yeah, it is. It's a strange, strange balance. Like I myself, um, I'm just really, I'm just naturally like a really polite person, and I know that everyone's just doing their job. But as long as they respect the fact that I'm just doing my job as well. I think that's the main thing and um, it's not personal at all because I mean if it was personal it wouldn't have been dark it wouldn't have been dark clear you know what I mean so um, yeah but it is it is awkward like like I've had some strange run-ins where you know you've written like a really embarrassing story or got someone reprimanded and then you're just standing next to them for a coffee and they're pretending they can't see you or worse they might confront you about it which um, I haven't had too much of, but I know what has happened to other journalists. I've uh, been chased across the Leinster House courtyard by a minister to give off about a story. So it happens. I mean, you have to understand, like, people are people. And, like, if you're if someone embarrasses you or you feel hard done by, you know, they feel like they have a right to say it. But at the end of the day, like, we're all just doing our jobs. And I think that's the main thing that we need to remember. One of the interesting aspects I felt of of this story uh, was from the reaction of journalists themselves. Um, it felt like everybody was at pains to uh, reference um, the, the examiner's work, yourself, uh, your work, Paul's work, constantly bringing back to the fact that you and the examiner broke the story. And it was interesting because it can be sometimes rare to see that level of credit in an industry where outlets are so competitive, um, mm. you know, and often kind of, you know, hate each other in, in some ways. And, and uh, but oftentimes have, have plenty of friends across different outlets and so on. And I guess as well, Elise Hand wrote a really good piece in the journal about um, the importance of journalism at this moment. And I, and I think that this year has highlighted that for for people in Ireland as well. Um 
And it also felt a bit like a baton passing moment to like so many younger journalists um, who, who uh, write about and, and broadcast about politics um, ha- have risen up over the last couple of years. What do you think that that kind of stuff says about this moment in Irish journalism? And, and how did that make you feel that people actually were going, you know, anytime it was mentioned, it was your work that was being cited? Yeah, that's this is so strange. But uh, me and Paul were actually texting about this yesterday, and I was saying, you know, I think coronavirus has really, really um, shown the Irish public how many young, good Irish journalists there are. The best work of the pandemic has been done by younger journalists. I think, like so, like Sarah King and Richard Chambers from Virgin Media and Rob O'Hanrahan from Joe.ie. Like, there's just been so much good work done by people who were maybe lesser known, maybe this time last year. And I have to say, like, I was really taken aback at how lovely and you know everyone had been about this story. I mean, Maria Mukel, <laughs> um read out our names on prime time and I like filmed it and sent it to Paul <laughs> but um yeah everyone has been so lovely and so kind I think like me and Paul were just saying every journalist um apart from a select few have texted us they congratulate us everyone is of course like they're a bit jealous that they didn't get it but they have been you know nothing but nice about it and you know that even that night like um as soon as the story was kind of growing arms and legs like Paul Quinn from Virgin Media phoned me just you know to say how good it was so yeah I mean I think as well the pandemic and lockdown has forced journalists to become a lot closer like you really (laughs) you really really treasure half an hour at an effort briefing when you've been stuck in your house for five days with (laughs) your significant other and like even getting to the Department of Health like I felt so lucky to like get out of my house and I think there's a lot of camaraderie and stuff um, that the pandemic has kind of spurred because we're all working under such strange conditions and lots of pressure and the government haven't been great when dealing with journalists and we're dealing with a lot of last minute changes to press calls and picking and choosing who goes because of social distancing. So everyone's, you know, really pulled together. We're sharing a lot of audio and video and we all kind of have to work as a team in terms of like deciding who goes to what. Um, but I've like, I've always said, you know, the difference between like I worked in Scotland for years and when, even when I moved to Dublin, I couldn't believe how nice other journalists were to each other, despite the competitive nature. And um, yeah, it, it was just, it was really overwhelming, like not to be too corny about it, but the reaction from other journalists has been so, so lovely. And I think that's a really like tribute to how well we all work together. Um, I'm going to move away from Golfgate now. Thanks so much for your time. I won't keep you <laughs> won't keep you much longer. But um, it we were recently on a on a did virtual Zoom whatever panel together for the the Gossyard Fela and uh, before um, Golfgate pre GG uh, <laughs> pre GG yeah. and um, one of the things you were talking about was well one of the things. That was the the topic of discussion, I suppose, was how the quote unquote Dublin media perceives the North and so on. And so it must be uh, very pleasurable uh, for you to um, be talking about something other than uh, or invited on to different radio shows and so on to mm-hmm. be talking about something other than the North, other than Derry and all those kind of things. 
yet one of the things that you you said there um, on that panel, I'm not speaking out of school because it was it was a public uh, mm-hmm. uh, panel, was about the perception of the North held by some journalists um, in Dublin. And you spoke about a journalist writing Madland on the northern part of a map of Ireland, I think it was in, in Leinster House. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience with encountering those kind of attitudes in the media industry um, when you move back to Ireland? Yeah, I mean... Um... When I first moved, not so much, obviously, when I was at the Star, because I was only kind of encountering, you know, other Star journalists and obviously Michael Tolles from Belfast himself. He's the uh, deputy editor. But when I went to Press Association and I was based in Leinster House, um, they also, Press Association also hired Kate McCurry at the same time. She's from Dungannon. So me and her started together and we're in Leinster House together. And we noticed pretty early on um, that there was no other northerners to speak of definitely not northern women and it was um yeah it, we encountered a lot of um jokes jo- but no one laughed <laughs> like, you you know yourself you know all oh, you're all mad up there and calling it like the occupied territories is a big thing like as a joke or taking the piss out of the accent or just wee things. I mean, no one has ever said, like, no other journalist has ever, you know, come out and told me to go home or anything. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of kind of wee passive-aggressive jokes and stuff like that. And uh, that is kind of par for the course as a northerner, I find. But, um, yeah, it does. It got really hard. And me and Kate used to say, you know, you kind of feel like a dancing bear at times. Um, they're always kind of, if something happens in the north or you um or yeah or something happens and they're talking about something and they ask like really inappropriate questions and stuff and um My yeah, so, uh, I wasn't going to tell us but one of the first um times I was out socially um with like it was actually with like a networking event or I can't remember it was a book launch or something but yeah an Irish journalist I didn't know that well just came out and asked me if my family, if any of my family were in the ARA. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, didn't seem put out when I had said, you can't ask people stuff like that. That's, you know, really inappropriate. And then, you know, you've heard other things like um, one person said to me, oh, I was at a job yesterday up in the north and like, when you're up there, like, it just totally feels like a different country, doesn't it? And I was like, no. <laughs> like, what do you want me to say to this? Um, so there's a lot of that, but it's never, to be honest, like, it's not ma- malicious as much as it's, it comes across as just a wee bit kind of ignorant. Um, but on the whole, I mean, my God, some of my, like, really good friends now are other journalists, and on the whole, I don't think it's... Um, it's so much a negative view that outwardly negative but it's a lot of you know jokey kind of the places are a bit written off and I think it's clear with the coverage of the North and the double media that the place is a bit written off Mm. What would be your kind of message to other journalists who think that that might be a gas thing or an appropriate thing to or you know way to be way to be like I'm not overly sensitive about it and obviously you can laugh along and stuff it's not like I go home from work crying but I do think it feeds into a wider narrative that you know we're not the same up there and it can be really other in the times 
and often you know making jokes of like oh like before before you were Irish and stuff like that and they're like doing it to get a rise out of you you know that kind of way but it's just it gets it just just wears you down after a while so I I think it's more just um and I have noticed it's not as much with younger journalists um maybe it's because obviously they don't have like fresher memories of the troubles or whatever but yeah it's um just if the joke's not funny just don't say it (laughs) good rule in general I find (laughs) finally before you go what are you working on at the moment and what stories and issues would you like to cover in the near future I am really interested in there is a review of the current sex work laws um undergoing uh in Ireland um uh the the terms of reference and stuff were published last month um sex workers they're saying to me that they are not as involved as they would like to be in you know the review which seems strange considering they would be the first people who are going to be most affected by any law change um so i'm really interested in he- seeing the outcome of that and getting you know our hands on the review which is due um next month and I also am really interested in seeing if there's going to be any marked change in homelessness um, in the pandemic. The eviction ban um, is to be lifted. And obviously speaking to Anthony Flynn um, and other homeless activist, housing activists, um, they're really concerned about it. I think I think actually you wrote this today, you know, but I think um, there is a chance to really change Irish society and change what's wrong with Irish society and I, through COVID and the pandemic you know we're all doing things differently now and I'm just really interested to see whether we actually are brave enough to say right this change is now and we're going to do it differently because it's not easy to do things differently it's not easy to change but you know we have a real opportunity here that we could probably right some wrongs. Eva Grace Moore thank you so much for your time and keep up the brilliant work. No worries. Thank you very much, Anna.